angry, 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 angry at arthritis. Welcome to Angry at Arthritis. My name is Steve O'Keefe, and we're talking about osteoarthritis, how to understand the disease, and where we are in our journey to cures. This is the patient's guide to osteoarthritis that I wanted when I received my osteoarthritis diagnosis. Insights from the world's leading osteoarthritis research and clinical experts. Consumer direct to the state of the science as we hunt for cures. Today, we're going to talk about rheumatologists. When I got my initial diagnosis of arthritis, after I recovered from the shock, the first questions I asked, how did this happen to me? And what flavor of arthritis do I have? And perhaps most importantly, where do I go for a cure? And that takes you directly to a rheumatologist's office. This critical rheumatologist diagnosis provides a path forward what kind of treatment we need. For example, there's no point in even trying to replace cartilage if the resident inflammation in your joint will simply destroy any new cartilage before you can even manage to grow it. I would very strongly recommend anybody who gets an arthritis diagnosis to meet with a rheumatologist so you can learn more about your condition. If you have an inflammatory arthritis, there are a series of FDA-approved drugs that can really help you. Drugs like hydroxychloroquine. No, it does not provide a cure for COVID. I know that, believe it or not. And methotrexate. You need to get on one of these drugs if you have an inflammatory diagnosis. And the stem cell treatments will not work if you have inflammatory arthritis. Before we get started, let me remind you that in addition to education and consumer direct-to-science access to the latest treatments and cures, Angriate Arthritis is a crowdsource funding platform so you can make a difference in moving forward the state of the cure. I strongly ask you to consider making a donation to help fund osteoarthritis research on our website. Just click the donate button. You will hear more about the amazing work that scientists and clinicians around the world are doing researching OA cures, but money is always a factor. We appreciate your support so we can all get better together. Okay, speaking of rheumatologists, I'm delighted to be joined by one of the world's leading rheumatologists, who also happens to be one of the leading lights in osteoarthritis research and clinical interventions, Professor David Hunter. Professor David Hunter is the Florence and Cope Chair of rheumatology at University of Sydney and a rheumatologist at Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney. David is a rheumatologist, clinical researcher, whose primary research focus is clinical and translational research in osteoarthritis. He is the section editor for up-to-date osteoarthritis, and he is the editor for osteoarthritis and cartilage, and has over 600 publications in peer-reviewed journals. He is co-director of Sydney's musculoskeletal health and leads the osteoarthritis team at Colling Institute, who are dedicated to improving our understanding of osteoarthritis and the quality of life for those who suffer from this prevalent disabling disease. This is going to be one of those duels of competing accents for our American listeners. For the correct diagnosis, 
I am from just outside London in England, and David is from Sydney, Australia. Now, you've doubtless heard some of the jokes between Australians and we colonial types. What does the Australians say? If you want to hide something from a pommy, put it under the soap. But David and I are definitely hygienically simpatico, and we're very much on speaking terms. David, welcome to Angry at Arthritis. Really happy to be here, Stephen. Thank you for having me along. Right, well, I'm only returning the favor you were good enough to host me on joint action some time ago, so it only seemed a reasonable thing to do. So, uh, David, if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where do you live and what do you do? So I'm fortunate to live in the paradise of Australia in a city called Sydney, which I would assume many of you are familiar with. What I do is I'm what I would call a, a rheumatologist clinician scientist, which basically means I see patients as a rheumatologist. I'm a scientist, so I spend a lot of my time doing research. And I'm fortunate enough to run a large research center, uh, which has a number of talented people there, about 250 people investigating a variety of musculoskeletal diseases. I co-chair as editor-in-chief the leading journal in our field, the Osteoarthritis and Cartilage Journal. And as Steve, you just mentioned, I'm also fortunate to host a podcast called Joint Action, which targets people who have osteoarthritis. Which, as I mentioned in the opening podcast, I binged your podcast as soon as I found out about it and really appreciated the opportunity to learn more and go deeper. So thank you for that opportunity. So how long have you been engaged in the field and what drew you to osteoarthritis? So I've been lucky enough to be in the osteoarthritis field for about 20 years. And so that dates back to when I finished my specialist training as a rheumatologist and did a PhD that was actually focused on osteoarthritis, which I finished in about 2001. So that's about 20 years ago. I have osteoarthritis. Why would I see a rheumatologist? And what should I expect when I see a rheumatologist? Firstly, for most people, they may not necessarily have heard of what a rheumatologist is. So a rheumatologist is essentially a, a medical specialist who's trained in the management of bone, joint, and muscle disorders. And so under that umbrella would fit all of the arthritis. You, you know, the most common ones that most rheumatologists would look after are things like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, vasculitis, scleroderma. So there's about a hundred different types of arthritis. And obviously the most common type of arthritis is osteoarthritis. But interestingly, most rheumatologists don't see a lot of osteoarthritis, primarily because, again, as medical specialists, we don't have a lot of what we would consider mainstream pharmacologic interventions that we can provide or afford to people with osteoarthritis outside of typical things like anti-inflammatories, for example. I mean, so at the moment, again, most rheumatologists don't spend a lot of time focused on osteoarthritis that most of their disease tends to focus and lean much more towards what we would call the autoimmune types of arthritis as opposed to osteoarthritis. I mean, so generally for most people with osteoarthritis, they wouldn't typically see a rheumatologist. Interesting. So most people with osteoarthritis would not see a rheumatologist to identify what might be going on with them. They just accept the fact that it's osteoarthritis? Um, no, no. So in a general, in an ideal world, this disease wouldn't necessarily, with our current management armamentarium, which ideally consists of things like education, uh, improving physical activity, improving strength, reducing weight, and those who are above a healthy weight, you don't need a rheumatologist to do that. That could be done with a primary care physician. Ideally, it could be done with a physical therapist. So generally, you don't need the complex management 
skills that a rheumatologist may bring to this. Can a rheumatologist play a part? Sure. And, you know, I think if I think about what rheumatologists are good at, it's oftentimes managing a team. Um, and so that if you need a lot of help from allied health professionals, so for example, you need to coordinate the care of um, a physical therapist, a dietitian, a psychologist, an orthotist, or whatever it may be, oftentimes a rheumatologist is very good at bringing those teams together. And so I'm a little bit, wouldn't call myself a unicorn, but a lot of people do say that about me as far as a rheumatologist is concerned, because that's pretty much what I do as a clinician, is I, I bring teams of other health professionals together to help with what we call the multidisciplinary, so the, the multiple discipline management of osteoarthritis. But again, most rheumatologists typically are not doing that for osteoarthritis, but they do have that skill set from managing other types of arthritis. I've been very impressed with the rheumatologists that I have encountered. I do think it's an absolutely vital link in the chain because I think that diagnosis is, of course, so important in terms of trying to work out where to go, especially as we look to the future in terms of treatments and understanding what category, and we'll talk about phenotypes at some point, that people fall into. So if you do go see a rheumatologist or you can take this test somewhere else, the first step seems to be the ANA test and the associated score. Can you talk about what the ANA test tells us and the scores and the like, please? Yeah, so there's, I mean, as, as you allude to, Steve, there's lots of different measures that are taken in blood or serum that a rheumatologist may do. So I guess the most common ones would be the rheumatoid factor, which is an antibody that gets elevated in people that have rheumatoid arthritis. Similarly, the CCP plays a similar role. The ANA is an anti-nuclear antibody. So this is a test that, again, is an, an antibody that a person may develop in the context of an autoimmune arthritis. In this particular instance, it's probably most commonly seen in a disease called lupus or systemic lupus erythematosus, which again occurs not uncommonly in particularly young females and is a relatively common form of, of arthritis. Again, some of the other tests that may be undertaken by a rheumatologist might include taking some fluid from the joint, what we call synovial fluid, and looking at that for counts of cells and also looking at that for making a diagnosis of a crystal arthritis like gout or pseudogout. Um, and then other types of just sort of broad ranging measures where you might measure an inflammatory marker like an ESR or CRP to see what level of inflammation there may be. So there's lots of different tests that are undertaken. In an ideal world, they're done with the context of the clinical presentation. So there, you know, there's a lot of false positives that can occur with a range of these tests. So I think it's really important they be done only in the context of a particular presentation that may increase risk or suspicion of a particular diagnosis. So for example, if you see inflammation in the joint, you're more likely to suspect an inflammatory disease, and therefore that would take you to certain blood tests in order to either confirm or deny that. Exactly, exactly. So that, you know, if a person presents particularly with nocturnal pain or, or early morning stiffness that's prolonged in duration, they've got a joint that's warm and inflamed and or maybe red, hot or swollen, it's important that you go along and have an appropriate diagnosis made. And that's, you know, where rheumatologists can play a, a pretty big role in helping to rule out or rule in other diagnoses. Because oftentimes the presentations can be quite complex. 
and then sometimes it takes a specialist to make those diagnoses. Yes, that uh, ANA. I've always had trouble saying nuclear after George W. Bush because, of course, he got it wrong. And once you hear it wrong, you kind of get stuck. So I just try to refer to it as the ANA test and avoid the nuclear word. Other than the ANA test, and maybe you could tell us a little about you know, what is a, a positive ANA versus a negative ANA? An ANA test is, a, a, again, a measure of an antibody that's raised against nuclear antigens. Um, and there are a range of nuclear antigens that are present within a person that has autoimmune disease. And so it usually gets measured in a strength of those antibodies. And it, you're given a titer or a teeter, depending upon what version of the English language you want to talk. And so oftentimes you'll see a, a titer that says one in 80 or one in 160 or one in 320. And the larger that second number tends to suggest or make it more likely that that antibody is actually meaningfully positive. So a very low teeter, so one in 40 or, or lower, tends to be something that we wouldn't particularly pay close attention to. And again, bear in mind that there are a number of false positives here. If you do have a, a positive anti-nuclear antibody, though, typically what we would then do is potentially go on and look to see which particular antibody is elevated, because there are a number of different antibodies that are present within that. And also potentially other tests, such as a double-stranded DNA that we may do, or looking at complement levels, which are, are other measures of inflammation. But again, really, really important to be done by someone who knows what they're looking at and takes into account that clinical context, because the number of people who I see who come along with a positive ANA who are quite concerned about the result of that test, but ultimately it, it's probably just a false positive in many instances. And so more often than not, I spend a lot of my time trying to reassure people that this has nothing at all to do with what they're presenting with clinically. But you can also have a negative positive, if that makes sense. You can have a negative ANA, but still have an inflammatory issue. Is that accurate? Correct. Correct. So, there, I mean, there are lots, lots of other reasons why a person may have inflammation in their joints outside of reasons for their ANA being elevated or negative similarly. Could you talk a little bit about inflammation and how it contributes to osteoarthritis or arthritis overall? As mentioned, there are, there are about 100 different types of arthritis, the most common ones of which are osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and gout. Inflammation is almost pervasive in all of them. And so historically, I think a lot of people used to think of osteoarthritis as a disease that wasn't inflamed. But I guess our further evaluation and study of that would suggest that it's pretty pervasive in everybody that has osteoarthritis. So, you know, if you look at the lining of the joint, what we call the synovium, in most people with osteoarthritis, that is inflamed. Similarly, there are elevated levels of white cells and other inflammatory markers like cytokines that are present within the synovial fluid and the tissues of the joint. And it, it's quite important, both from the viewpoint of the pathology that's occurring within the joint, its role in making the disease progress. And probably most importantly for you as someone who has osteoarthritis, the experience that you're actually getting from the illness itself. So the inflammation can swell or distend the joint, what we call an effusion, and that can cause pain in and of itself just by distending the capsule. Oftentimes, systemic inflammation can contribute to the underlying disease and also contribute to a person feeling fatigued if they do have ongoing symptoms and inflammation related to the joint. So it plays a really important role. And historically, I think it was 
it was de-emphasized, particularly its role in osteoarthritis, but we really recognize this is quite important now. Yeah, so this is beyond the notion of just wear and tear, which is the way that osteoarthritis was traditionally characterized. Yeah, very much so. Those archaic terms like wear and tear, degenerative, bone on bone, really, really don't convey what's truly happening at a pathologic level. And so this is a very dynamic process where there's lots of different changes that are occurring in the pathology of the joint and inflammation plays a really key role in it. And inflammation flare. So at certain times it will be low and other times it will spike. It can. Typically in the early phases of disease, most people's symptoms are very short-term self-limited. Um, and it's during those episodes or flares of the disease where those inflammatory processes are more pronounced. You know, a person may have undertaken an activity that they're otherwise unaccustomed to and their joint swells. And so that's usually a manifestation of inflammation within the joint. It's usually, again, short-term self-limited. And, you know, there are a number of things that they can do during those episodes or flares to bring that down. So that may be using some compression, some ice, maybe a short course of anti-inflammatories, for example. So I don't have rheumatoid arthritis, I don't have psoriatic arthritis, and I don't have lupus. And when I say I, I'm just standing in for every man. So what causes osteoarthritis and where do I go for cures? It's a good question and it's a big question. And it's something that I think we're developing a greater understanding of. And I, I usually try and use a framework to simplify this as best I can. So that framework consists of what I would call systemic risk factors. So that's at the person level. And then there's local risk factors that may contribute to this. And so I'm going to talk about the systemic ones first, and then I'm going to talk about the local ones second. But I think if we talk about the systemic risk factors, they're things like being older age, the biologic sex of so women have this more frequently than men, people who are above a healthy weight, the role of obesity plays an incredibly important role as a systemic risk factor, but it also interestingly increases loading locally. So there's a range of different systemic risk factors, and you might want to throw diet into there, for example. So there are certain ethnicities that are predisposed to certain types of arthritis as a consequence of dietary deficiencies. But then when we look locally, the local risk factors are things like injury, particularly. So if you tear your cruciate ligament or you tear your meniscus or you tear another structure within a joint, you're much more likely to get osteoarthritis. If the joint's not properly aligned mechanically, um, it tends to play a role in the development of osteoarthritis. I would look systemically, locally. And I think if we look at the population as a whole, and particularly if we focus down on knee osteoarthritis, for example, you know, it's the family history, gender, age. But then if we think about the modifiable factors, it's really, we pay a lot of attention to things like body weight and joint injury. And those are the two ones that we, I think from a primary prevention perspective, could do a hell of a lot better at. Right. And those are things that we refer to as phenotypes, which is sort of medical speak for what category of patient you fall into. Yeah. I mean, and so there's a lot of interest at the moment, Steve, in the development of our understanding of phenotypes. And these are different ways that people might develop disease. And so that takes into account, as mentioned, so those injury phenotypes, the metabolic phenotype, which is those who are above a healthy weight who might also have diabetes or high blood pressure or things like that. But in addition, you know, I think 
menopause plays a role here um, and potentially, you know, a really important role in why women develop this more often than men, along with that sort of senescent phenotype, that aging related phenotype that I think we haven't really tapped into as well as we could have. Looking at these categories or phenotypes, is osteoarthritis a heritable disease? If your parents had it and your brothers and sisters have it, are you more likely to develop it? So genes definitely plays an important role, but it differs by the joint that's involved. So for example, if we focus down at the level of the knee, about 20% of your risk of developing osteoarthritis is related to genes that you're born with. So that's the a level of heritability that we talk about for the knee. In contrast, for the hip and the hands, about 50% of your risk relates to heritable components, so genes that you're likely born with. And for the spine, it's probably about 80%. It varies very much depending upon what joint it is that, that is affected, but genes do play a role. Family history plays an important role. You know, if you've got a first-degree family relative that has osteoarthritis, are you more at risk? Definitely. Does it mean you're going to get it? No. So once I know that I don't have rheumatoid arthritis, I don't have psoriatic arthritis, I don't have lupus, is there still a role for a rheumatologist in my care? So I would say yes, but it depends on the rheumatologist. So there's, you know, I would say 95% of rheumatologists don't have a strong interest in the management of osteoarthritis. They're much more, have a stronger affinity towards the autoimmune inflammatory arthritis. There are a small number of rheumatologists, though, that are really good at helping that diagnosis be made, but also play a really important role in managing teams of people that can help you with your osteoarthritis management. And so there I'm talking about those multidisciplines that might get involved in educating you about the disease, helping you to lose weight, getting you stronger, making you more physically active, considering the use of braces and psychological therapies and so on. So I think if you can find a rheumatologist that's heavily engaged and involved in this space, that's really invested in your care and your long, long-term goals, then by all means, ally yourself with that rheumatologist. Yeah, I'd like to give a shout out to my rheumatologist here in Northern Virginia, Dr. Sepp. He's been absolutely fantastic. And I have a meeting with uh, Bing Clifton from Johns Hopkins next week, so I'm looking forward to that conversation. Wonderful. Great rheumatologist. Okay, there you have it. A romp through rheumatology but it certainly is no laughing matter. And let me say that trying to get an appointment with a rheumatologist is no laughing matter either. They are typically oversubscribed, but please be patient. I guess that's why they call us patients. As I say, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Arthritis is a lonely journey. You absolutely need to understand what's causing your problems in order to create a roadmap to feeling better. As I said, there are FDA-approved drugs for inflammatory arthritis. And if you have an inflammatory condition, you absolutely need to start taking the right drug. With that, I'd like to say thank you to Professor David Hunter for visiting with us from Sydney. We appreciate your commitment to leadership. And I'd like to invite you back on a future podcast to talk about your paper on disease-modifying osteoarthritis drugs, the mythical D-mode that promise real cures for osteoarthritis. David, we won't say goodbye but rather until next time. If you'd like to make a contribution to support the emerging osteoarthritis cures, you can do that on our website. Just click the donate button. Angry at Arthritis is your platform to take action to end this disease. You don't have to be a Rockefeller.
a $5 contribution here or there certainly adds up. Okay, you made it through the first three foundational episodes. Now we're going to start looking closely at innovative new treatments in the clinic and in the lab, the promise real cures. First up, Dr. Yvonne Martin from the University of Basel in Switzerland. Dr. Martin will introduce us to his team's nasal tissue engineered cartilage or NTEC treatment. In this, they harvest cells from nasal cartilage and grow them into cartilage patches, which are surgically inserted into damaged OA joints. His team has treated over 100 human patients with NTEC, knees, shoulders, and ankles. As I said in the opening podcast, I'm super excited about NTEC, and I hope to have Yvonne and his team replace the cartilage in my elbows next year. We'll get into NTEC and what makes it so special. Let's not get angry at arthritis. Let's get even. <laughs> 